Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of A Disciple's Point of View. So last week we went over the bold judgments and over the last several weeks we've been going over the various judgments in the book of Revelation. There's a series of 21 judgments that are divided up into three particular segments, if you could call it that. We have the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and then the bowl judgments. So what we're going to talk about today is what in the world happens after all of that, after the absolute just raining down of fire, and at some points, quite literally, um, to what is all this pushing towards? What is all this almost heralding? It's almost like this long kind of drawn out process whereby the absolute king of the earth, the creator of the universe, is actually going to physically take back his creation, right? And and that was the big pronouncement of the, the last bold judgment, that the wrath of God is complete and everything is finished kind of thing. So this is what is always very puzzling to me as well whenever you're talking about somebody who is discussing the book of Revelation and end times and end things and whatnot, and who advocate that the church goes through this. At some point, you're going to have to basically go out of a plain sense interpretation, and you're going to have to start spiritualizing and symbolizing stuff. Now, I want to say a disclaimer with that. There is symbolism throughout the book of Revelation that's inescapable, that is an absolute truth. But the thing of it is, is you let scripture interpret scripture. Instead of coming up with some weird ethereal meaning that anybody in the world can come up with, we always understand that symbolism is still referring to something actual and literal. So whenever people say that the church goes through this, so you're telling me the church endures getting scorched with fire, as one of the bold judgments is, that the church gets to drink blood, as one of the bold judgments is. There is an argument to be made that, yes, Israel, actually, when Jesus in Matthew 24 is talking about actually running when you see the abomination of desolation, which I believe to be uh, the Antichrist and dwelt by Satan, who declares himself to be God in the rebuilt temple. See also 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that Israel is told to run at that point, and it is believed based on other Old Testament passages that Probably the city of Petra, the area of Petra, is where Israel flees to, and only a third of Israel survives. See also Zechariah chapter uh, 13, I believe. And it's not a factor of, you know, we're longing for another Jewish holocaust. This is what is prophecy to happen. This is per God himself. So to say that the church goes through that but somehow receives shielding from those judgment really doesn't have any scriptural basis. The biggest and best uh, scriptural argument you can make is that the church is simply not present during the tribulation. And anybody saved during the tribulation is almost immediately killed because of their faith. So we now come to a point where the Lord himself physically, corporeally, is getting ready to enter onto the world stage. We no longer will have to take God by faith at this point because we've had seven years of testimony that the supernatural is real. 
and that the wrath of God is real. As early as the sixth seal judgment in uh, Revelation uh, chapter uh, uh, six, I believe, the elites of the world scream out for the rocks to fall on them and to hide them from the wrath of God and of the Lamb. They know what this is. There is no mistaking it. This is not just some cosmic weirdness. This is not some sort of, you know, just, just random happenstance. It is happening exactly as the book of Revelation has, has basically told us for 2,000 years that it's going to pan out, and they recognize that. So we'll go ahead and jump into it right now. The first point I want to make is that the sixth bowl judgment found in Revelation 16, 12, verses 12 through 16 sets up the battle of Armageddon. And I'm going to go into in a moment what exactly Armageddon actually means. A lot of people think it's like, you know, um, there was even a movie in the late 90s called Armageddon. As a matter of fact, one of the characters, I think it was the president in the United States in the movie, was saying, the Bible calls this day Armageddon. And I always wanted to scream at the TV and go, no, it actually doesn't. Uh, what Armageddon is, is actually very antithetical to what we've always said it was. So the demonic spirits unleashed uh, at this particular bowl judgment gather the armies of the earth to war against God. So I made a reference last week, a pop culture reference that I believe is very uh emblematic of what is actually going to take place that Thanos is hypothetically God in this scenario and that the armies of the earth gather to try to defeat God and stop him from what he is doing but they're going to find out very quickly that they're not going to be able to in verse 16 it specifically states that these demons gather them into Armageddon so now we come to the point of what is Armageddon it's actually a translation from Hebrew that states Har Megiddo, which means the hill of Megiddo. It is a physical place that exists today. As a matter of fact, there is a Bible prophecy teacher by the name of Amir Safadi, whose residence actually, his, he often says, his backyard overlooks Har Megiddo. So this is an actually, this is a place that is 30 miles south of Haifa, in the Jezreel Valley. So basically, these demonic uh, entities are unleashed on the world to simply gather up human beings to go to this physical place, okay? The second point I want to make is there is a pronouncement against the world's false religious system, and this can be found in Revelation chapter 17 through chapter 18 and verse 20. And God likens the system to a harlot that the kings of the earth commit adultery with. Many, many times in the Old Testament, God would call Israel a harlot for going after idols and false gods. And this can be found in Deuteronomy 31, verse 16, Judges chapter 2, verse 17, and Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 15. If you think about it this way, the new covenant is a very intimate relationship with God and his people. We are likened to sons of God, right? In uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, you also have uh, us being likened to a bride um, making herself ready for a wedding in Revelation 19. I get ahead of myself a little bit in making that point, but 
this is a very close relationship and it is probably without the sexuality there's no sexuality going on so don't make it weird people um it is very much likened to a husband and wife relationship in terms of the closeness of that relationship and that is why god likens a false religious system to that of a harlot very immoral very illicit uh relationship because basically we are when we embrace a false religion we are aligning ourselves with the doctrine of demons the only powers that exist in the universe believe it or not is god and obviously the devil and the fallen angels that's it and i know it's a very audacious statement to make in our scientific world but if if you read through with what the bible has to say it is for god so love the world singular not for god so love the world's meaning that there are other civilizations and other alien life out there that's a whole nother discussion for another day regardless of the fact false religion has kept mankind deceived but they wanted the deception and were given over to it they meaning other human beings who embrace that and where i get that idea from is in romans 1 verses 18 through 32 much like i likened it to the seal judgments in revelation 6 where god gives the world over to it basically the downward slope is sinful desires follow into shameful lusts which follow into a depraved mind things that should never ever be done god gives them over to it because they have shown in their mind and in their heart of hearts that that's what they want the most so god says fine i'm giving you over to it in a judicial judgment against them okay so the next point I want to make is there is a pronouncement also against the world system that was contrary to God. And this can be found in Revelation 18, verses 21 through 24. Fallen is the system where the blood of the prophets and God's holy people was found. And this is a system that is responsible for the systematic slaughter of God's people throughout the centuries. And it now stands judged. I said just a few moments ago. That if you come to faith during the tribulation period, you're likely going to die for your faith. And this is something that is currently happening uh, in mass throughout the 20th and 21st century. We don't see it a lot here in the United States because we have laws that pr supposedly protect religious freedom. So we don't see this a whole lot within the United States and a lot of the Western world. We're starting to see it now. We're not really seeing it as even they would see it in India, Pakistan, China, North Korea. These nations that are either hostile or restricted against Christianity. Um, there are very brave men and women who are missionaries that go into these places that oftentimes will find themselves getting persecuted for their faith or outright martyred. But it will happen on a on a scale hitherto undreamt of to to borrow a phrase from a movie uh, that we will see in the tribulation period if you become a christian during this time okay so that now stands judged next point i want to make is people in heaven rejoice that god in heaven has overthrown deceptive false religion and the world that was contrary to god see also revelation 19 verses 1 through 5. And this is where we see the wedding of the lamb and the bride is announced. And that's found in verses 6 
through 9 of chapter 19. The bride are those who were either raptured prior to this time period or have died in Christ during this time period. Now, verse 8 tells us who the bride is. They were given fine linen, bright and clean to wear, and it goes on to say these are the righteous acts of the saints. And the saints uh, is a kind of like an overarching term. It doesn't necessarily mean the church per se. It means people who are redeemed by the blood of Christ. Christ, those who have been made clean by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, those who are washed clean of their sins, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, as is stated, I believe, in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Okay, so the reason why we have to really show who the bride is, is because of what happens at the second coming, and that is my next point that I want to make. After the wedding of Christ and the church, the heavens are opened. The rider of this white horse is contrasted with Revelation 6 verses 1 through 2 and completely identifies this rider uh, in chapter 19 as Jesus Christ. It specifically says that his name is the Word of God. See also John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Fast forward to verse 14 in chapter 1. It says, and the Word was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. Clearly is Jesus Christ. Now, here's the key of why you have to identify who the bride is and who are the people who are wearing bright and white, clean linens. Okay? Those riding with him are the church. Where I get this from is verse 15 correlated with verse 8. It's identified as the same. These aren't just simply angels, although they may well be riding with Jesus at the second coming, but it is clearly the bride of Christ. It is clearly those who uh, God has prepared for his son Jesus Christ to be his people and that we shall worship God forever and ever. Now, those gathered... Uh, at the Battle of Armageddon, I've already said it before, they're there to war against God. And that's found in verse 19. This is pivotal because a lot of times I've heard throughout my lifetime that in the book of Revelation, people are gathered to war against each other and God returns just in time to save those who uh, might destroy themselves. No, these people are gathered to war against God. That can't be emphasized enough. They actually think they can do it. They can overcome God with all their might. Again, this is why the pop culture reference of the Marvel movies is very applicable here. God can be likened to Thanos and that the world is gathering together to war against their, in their view, God's unjust war with humanity, which in fact it is very just and we are a rebel creation. And God basically is putting down the rebellion once and for all. In chapter 16, verses 14 through 16, it was the demons who brought the kings of the earth and their armies out to war against God. This is the ancient war between basically God and the devil and those that the devil uh, convinced to follow in his rebellion, which in Revelation 12 tells us it's about a third of the heavenly host. Okay, so... Basically, again, as I've said in other podcasts, that the devil 
uses us to war with God. He can't necessarily war with God directly because he is a created being. He can only go so far as what God allows him to go. See also Job chapter one and two. He can't do anything directly against God. He has to go with the weaker link, and that's us. He goes after Lois Lane because he can't war directly with Superman. Pop culture reference, but it still applies. But we don't have much to do as far as the bride riding with Jesus during this time. We don't have much to do because the scripture says in verse 21 that he slays them by the word of his mouth. And you can correlate that with Hebrews 4, chapter. Uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. He spoke the universe into existence, and now he slays his enemies with a spoken word. He's the one doing all the fighting, and he doesn't even really have to fight in the conventional sense. He just simply says, die, and they die. I mean, what he says actually occurs because he is that powerful. And that is why the devil has never had a hope or a prayer. But this is the problem with the abandonment judgment that I talked about earlier, because you actually get to a point where you think you can win. Satan believes he can actually win. He can actually change the course of history. And he can actually stop Thanos and keep him from destroying half the population in the universe. The thing of it is, is that God is taking back the earth. He is taking back the rebel creation. He's putting down the rebellion once and for all. And he is now going to rule as king of kings and lord of lords. And this is where the antichrist and false prophet are captured and are immediately thrown into the lake of fire. See in verse uh, uh, chapter uh, 19, verse 20. And the lake of fire is forever, folks. A lot of people want to say that hell isn't real. It is people are going to simply be annihilated that reject Jesus Christ because a loving God wouldn't necessarily punish people in hell forever. A loving God has waited over 20 centuries, now 21 centuries, I guess, to judge the world. He has not let this fall yet. We're starting to see signs that this could very well be uh, fast upon us, given the uh the collapsation of, uh, if that's a word, of the uh, Western world who has heralded the gospel. That's going dark and very quickly in our culture. Israel is back in the land. That is huge because you really honestly, with the new covenant not being enjoyed by the Jewish people in the land that he gave to Abraham and his descendants forever, see also Genesis chapter 15, and with the new covenant prophecies in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel 39, Jeremiah 31, Daniel chapter 9. It really doesn't have a full fulfillment. The church is not the full fulfillment. See also Romans chapter 11. The church is simply a vehicle by which God was moving Israel to jealousy. Right? He was taking an, another people who did not seek him, a foolish nation who did not seek him, and he was revealing himself to them people who did not call on his name. I can attest to this just by my own personal testimony alone, and I know that's anecdotal, but still, it's I was not looking for God, and God found me during a conversation about witchcraft, of all things, by somebody who is a backslidden Christian. 
He was not looking to witness to me, I assure you. But he did. And now, over 20 years later, I'm or almost 30 years actually at this point, I'm sitting here doing a podcast about Christianity and about the end times. God can get whomever he wishes. He can get the gospel to whomever he wishes. Okay? So, even though the Jewish people, by and large right now, are not enjoying the new covenant, they are still very much clinging to the old covenant because they reject Jesus as Messiah, as quote-unquote evidenced by nearly 2,000 years, and where is he kind of thing. This is God having mercy on this world. They will have no excuse whatsoever that God didn't do enough to try to reach the world. There is going to be a lot of evidence presented in what is called the Great White Throne Judgment. See also Revelation chapter 20, verses uh, 15 through 19, I believe. God is going to have more than enough evidence to quote-unquote convict. The thing of it is, is once the Antichrist and false prophet are captured, this is king's justice, meaning there is no trial. You are pronounced guilty. Done. Ipso facto. Not like it is today, because we have an all-knowing, all-seeing, ever-present judge, jury, and executioner. He knows it all. The, the attitudes of the heart and your innermost desires, your innermost thoughts are laid bare before God. You can hide nothing from him. Nothing. Nothing at all. Satan is thrown into the abyss at this point and imprisoned for a thousand years. And some people might wonder, and that can be found in chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Some people might wonder why God didn't do the same thing with Satan at this point. Because... Well, we have the king of kings returning to the earth to rule corporeally and physically from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And this is to fulfill a bunch of Old Testament prophecies about the kingdom of David and how the son of David would reign forever and ever. See also Daniel chapter 7, uh, verses 13 through 14. There's also um, a passage that escapes me. I believe it's in uh, Second Chronicles about how basically the son of David would come and would rule forever, okay? The thing of it is, is that he is going to reign for a thousand years, and I believe why Satan is not immediately thrown into the lake of fire is he's still serving another purpose. He's serving a purpose in that human nature is just depraved, and it is deceivable, and you can have a thousand years of Jesus corporeally reigning from Jerusalem, and those who are still in the flesh, because they're going to be regular human folks that go into the millennial kingdom, who in some ways are like tares. The reason why I say that is because they're going to be false believers, because at the very end of the millennial reign of Christ, Satan is loosed for a thousand, or I'm sorry, for after that thousand years, he's loosed for a time, and it is said that the people that surround the people of God in Jerusalem are like sands of the seashore. It's Armageddon part two at this point. Fundamentally, they're there to war against God again and to try to overthrow God. Okay, but that's another, uh, that's that that's a uh, podcast for next week. The last thing I want to talk about is, is it must be stated that all the armies of the earth were no match for Jesus Christ. He is God. See also John chapter 1, verse 1 and 14, and also Revelation 1, verses 7 and 8. 
the thing of it is, is all the military might and all the nuclear weapons and all of the world and all of whatever the top secret weaponry that we have is no match for the for the entity that can create by speaking. All he has to do is speak it into existence and it exists. Satan actually, for whatever reason, thinks that he can war against God. He can't. He will lose every time. Even if he wars through us, he will lose every time by Jesus dying on the cross and then raising from the dead and having a divine legal transaction take place of when one puts their faith in Jesus Christ that their sin is transferred to the cross some 2,000 years ago and the righteousness of Christ is somehow transferred to that new believer. And now he is seen as completely pure and righteous before God. That God, through Jesus Christ, took the punishment of sin, which is eternal separation, because Jesus was God in the flesh. He endured separation from God for a time, being that he is eternal in nature. It was efficacious to pay for the eternal. It was a substitute for the eternal separation that the believer in of himself would endure if he just stayed in his sin. See also John chapter 3, verse 36, that if we die apart from Christ, the wrath of God remains on us. But if we are found in Christ, see also John 3, 16, then the righteousness of Christ is transferred to us. He, Jesus took the punishment for us. And if you want to know how you can appropriate this to your own life and become part of this family, part of this bride that will become victorious and Satan will never be able to touch and all the armies of the earth will never be able to touch, I want you to listen to the next segment coming up in a few seconds. At this point in the podcast, I want to reach out to you. And if you have never done so, if you have never entered into a saving relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that today. All you need to do is believe. Believe that Jesus was who he said he was. He was God in the flesh. Believe in your heart that he died for your sins and rose from the dead. Confess him as Lord. And the Bible says that you will be saved if you do that. If you truly believe in your heart that Jesus is who he said he was and that he did exactly what he said he would do for you, you will be saved. It is simply that easy. A lot of people say prayer, prayer. And that's great to confess and put your mind and your heart and everything through a process, if you will, to be able to embody what's already taken place in your heart. By simply saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died for my sins. I believe in my heart that you were raised from the dead. And now I confess you as Lord. Please take control of my life. And I want to follow you for the rest of my days. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. That's all you need to do. And your life will change. Your life will change, not necessarily materially, not necessarily in terms of the world, but your life will change as far as your relationship with God. And you can know for certain that you're saved. The Apostle John wrote that when he was pinning 1 John. He says, I write these things to you that you may know that you have 
eternal life. Not that you can hope, not that you can wonder, but that you can know. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. I want to thank you so much for listening to my podcast today. If you'd like to get in touch with me for any reason, I have the links for the social networks that I am connected on in my bio for this podcast. I'm also available at Gmail at DisciplePOV, that's D-I-S-C-I-P-L-E-P-O-V at gmail.com. If you have anything that you would like to convey to me, such as something you agree with, something you don't, or anything else, or if you did receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your life, I'd love to hear from you today and to assist you on your new eternal journey.